Good evening, everybody. Hello. Hi. Pastor. I got called Padre the other day. It was awesome. I, yeah, when I, uh, I have some fun with uh, some, some of my friends in the community, and they like to make fun of me for being a pastor. And so they called me Padre and et cetera. And I let them know that I like to be called His Excellence, actually. <laughs> and I prefer that. And I'm going to be getting a ring that they can kiss. It's going to be pretty fun when I actually do it. Uh, okay, I want to start off. Let's, uh, let's play a game. Uh, I'm going to say some things about somebody. And this is a, a kind of a famous person, kind of. Uh, and it's just going to be one person. And let's see if you can tell me who it is, okay? So it's going to be a number of facts about a single person. So from age 18, she started to devote her life to missionary work and charity. She founded the Order of Missionaries of Charity in 1948. Because she gave up her income in order to do her charitable work, she often had to resort to begging for food and supplies in the beginning. Her mission was, in her own words, to take care of the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people who have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. Her order founded orphanages, hospices, and charity centers worldwide to take care of all who needed help. In one episode, she rescued 37 children in Beirut who were trapped in a frontline hospital during a war by brokering a ceasefire between the two sides. She cared for everyone, regardless of race, religion, and political views. Quote, no matter who says what, you should accept it with a smile and do your own work. At the end of her life, she had founded 517 missions in over 100 countries. Who am I talking about? Ding, 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 ding. Gold stars for Jack and pretty much everybody else. So he raised his hand. It's good. Uh, it's a good student, Jack. Good job, bud. But talking about Mother Teresa, and it's funny. Mother Teresa is one of those people where we, we just kind of throw her name around a lot. Oh, yeah, Mother Teresa, or she's a saint, and, and all that stuff. And I think it tends to actually diminish the impact that she actually had. Like when you read through this list, which is just a, a small portion of the things that she did, she was an incredible, incredible woman. So why am I talking about Mother Teresa? Well, this, I think, dovetails well, or it it moves well into what we're going to be talking about today in our passage. We're continuing our series on Philippians. It's called Joy. And as Paul, the person who wrote the, the letter to the Philippians, as he's writing this letter, he's nearing the end of his life, and he's learned a lot to say, to kind of have an understatement. He's, he's also, he's done a lot. In fact, if you took... Paul, all of the things that he did in his legacy, it would stack up pretty well with Mother Teresa. So Paul is now imprisoned. They both impacted untold millions of lives. He's now writing, he's in prison, and he's writing to the church in Philippi, and he wants to pass along some of the things he's learned, particularly from Jesus himself. And so today, this is our big idea, and we're going to, if you take away nothing from today, other than this, I would be okay with it, because this is the most important part. It's right from the text, and that's count others more significant than yourselves. It's even on, the, on there, so you can burn it into your mind. Count others more significant than yourselves. 
this is one of those statements that's much easier to say than to actually do. Why? Well, because typically if I'm going to put others before myself, I have to put aside or set aside the things that I want, typically, because more often than not, I don't want to have other people come first. I'm selfish, I think, at the base. And so this is particularly interesting that Paul's saying this, considering the context. Because if we were to go back to last week, and at the end of chapter 1 in verse 30, Paul mentions to the people of Philippi that they're going to be, and probably already are, experiencing some of the same things that he had, some of the same sufferings. What were those? Well, just two things out of many was beatings in prison. Both of those things Paul experienced in Philippi. If you remember in Acts 16, when he ended up going to prison, was beat mercilessly, all of these things. So some of these things are going to start happening to other people. And when bad things like that start to happen, what tends to go out the window? Thinking about other people, right? Like if I'm going to prison, I'm thinking about how am I going to get out of prison or something like that? How am I going to stop these people from beating me up? These are the sorts of things that run, tend to run through our, our minds. So because these people were experiencing tough times, it's especially important to be taking his words, these next words that we're going to be reading, listening to seriously. Because although we, in this context, aren't necessarily going through the same sorts of things that they are, going through said beatings and and persecution and stuff like that for faith, the stuff that we are going through is nevertheless still important. We still go through tough times. Tough times, I think, are relative in the sense that We are all experiencing issues, tough parts of our life that sometimes can make even getting through the day difficult. Do we agree? This life is not easy no matter what we're going through, even if we're not going by. So even though we may not be going through the same things they are, it doesn't mean that we allow these words to just slip by. They're not for when the going gets especially tough. They're just there for especially when it does get that tough. At the end of the day, friends, we need to know that we can count on one another. We need to know that when the going does get tough, the friends won't get going, that we have people that we can lean on. And we'll know better if we can lean on other people if we are there to be leaned on for them. It's comforting to know that we're not alone. And that's one of the beautiful things, or should be the beautiful thing about Christian community. So we're going to jump in. We're going to look at each verse. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to see Paul first gives us motivation on putting people first. And then he gives us the means by which to do it. And then he's going to show us the way of the master so that we can really see how it's done. So motivation means master. Now, it kind of sounds like there, I'm actually building an outline, but I'm not. I'm just going to talk about those things, but I'm not actually going to lay it out in that order. So verse 1, I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I think it's hilarious that Paul starts this off by saying, make me happy. This is like a big text on being selfless, being humble, and Paul starts off this part of the letter with, make me happy, complete my joy. 
what are you getting at, Paul? Paul's actually letting us in on a little secret that he's discovered on what it means to experience joy in life, sort of how, how the joy spectrum or, or the, the way to finding joy in this life works. So what he's saying essentially is emulating the humility and the selflessness of Jesus to those around us is going to bring humility and then, sorry, is going to bring joy. But then once you start to see that actually reflected in the people's lives that you're impacting back to you, it, it, it comes full circle and it completes it. Does that make sense? So, but without unity, that's not going to happen. It starts with unity in the community. We talked about this last week, that when Paul talks about having the same mind, what he's not getting at is that we're all supposed to be just this group, big think, and, and just all, you know, Vulcans or, or mind meldy type stuff where we all just have the same thoughts all the time. It means that we agree and work towards the same goal. And Paul's included that in particular right here. The goal is to take encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. And then verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count. Here's our, here's our big idea, right? Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. So this is having that, that one mind. It's clearly, this isn't an exhaustive list of what it takes to be a good person, but what Paul's trying to get at is what a community, one that's centered around Jesus Christ, should look like, it, it, or should seek to look like. How it should look at community, how it should look at other people. How do I know this? Well, we're going to get to verse 5 in just a second, but verse 5 and onward is how we know that. See, every context that we find ourselves in has a set of unwritten rules, sort of things that make it go, that help govern it, things that make it the way it is supposed to be. So you take baseball, for instance. There's in baseball, baseball, got my baseball buddy with me. So in baseball, there's, a, there's, there's the rules, right? Like three strikes are out, four balls, take your base, infield fly rule. There's these written rules. But in baseball, there's also a whole bunch of unwritten rules. For instance, don't show up the pitcher that you just hit a home run off. If anybody's a, a baseball fan or even just read Canadian news a few years ago, uh, Jose Bautista broke this rule hugely when he hit a, a home run off a Rangers pitcher and then proceeded to do one of the most epic bat flips in the history of bat flips. It wasn't even really a flip. He like just kind of chucked it with his, you know, just for men, black beard shining and, and, and all this stuff. It, it was pretty incredible, but he, he broke, he shattered the rule that you don't show up the pitcher and he ended up getting punched for it. So these unwritten rules, they govern, help govern the game. So if you follow these, things tend to work better. Relationally, people tend to work better together. See, our world is governed by a set of rules that has been written down, right? Like we do, we have, we have God's written word to us. And I know some of you are thinking, those aren't rules. It's about a relationship. But, you know, don't commit murder. No, don't do adultery. And, and you know what I mean? Like, we can, we can say they're not rules if we want to, but they're kind of they're kind of rules, right? Because if you if you break them, there's consequences. So let's just be comfortable with it being calling them rules. But it's also a relationship, right? That's an aside and kind of like a hobby horse of mine that I, I needed to work out on you for just a moment. Okay, 
back to the sermon. So it's, it's guided by some of these written rules. But the thing that's really, really cool about, about God's word to us is that we've seen it. People have been able to grasp it without this. If, if you're a fan of philosophy, this would be called objective moral values. And that means that most people in most places at most times have figured out on their own that killing people is bad. Right? Like mo- most places, like that's why when, they, when we discover sometimes in books like Eternity in Their Hearts, Don Richardson has talked about and detailed a bunch of these different groups of people. And you go there and it's called Eternity in Their Hearts because... They're kind of acting like Christians when they get there, right? Without any missionary, anybody to tell them, don't kill people. They're just not doing it, among a bunch of other things, right? Or most places, when, or every, almost every place, when they do something that's an aberration, like think, like write it into the rules. You should kill people. Typically, those sorts of societies don't last very long, right? Like they're very, very rare, and they typically crumble, It's because people intuitively know. It doesn't mean that we get it right. I'm not saying that people don't get stuff wrong all the time. It's just that most of the time we understand when we're doing something wrong. We we choose to override this, oh man, I shouldn't be killing anybody, but I actually feel like it right now, so I'm going to do that. Same with other sorts of sinful things. Is everybody following me? I'm not denying total depravity here. I, I, you know, I'm not saying that we don't have inclinations towards bad things. I'm just saying that we... At the heart of it, no, we're doing bad things. So if you adopt these rules, these rules, these unwritten rules, we know life's a little bit better. See, in our passage, Paul's getting at some of these things that are these unwritten things that we should be following. He's saying life isn't all about you. It's about others too. He's saying that if you want to be free, try humility. So I'm trying to make these rhymes so they'll stick in our, in our minds. Oh, I just made that. It's like Inception, just rhymes within rhymes. So you'll notice that Paul isn't trying to say, he's not saying ignore yourself, uh, uh, just this complete death to self and, and, and whatever. He's saying pay attention to other people. or pay, You can pay attention to yourself, but make sure you're not ignoring other people. Just don't think that you're better than other people. Don't think that you deserve more than other people. See, I, I know I don't, need a, a, the, I don't need the Bible. I don't need an after-school special. I, I don't need someone to tell me that I should be treating you all better than I treat myself. I, I know that intuitively. It's just that, remember back when I said I was selfish, I, I just forget that sometimes, and I, and I tend to lean towards, oh, what's in it for me if I treat this person better than me, right? That's where often my mind ends up going, I think, our collective mind ends up going. So Paul's just reminding us. So what does this look like? Paul, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or another way of putting it, or which was also in Christ Jesus. So the mind that Jesus had while he was on earth, that he has had for eternity, and that's putting others first. See, whenever I see someone somebody doing something really, really well, I always want to emulate. It doesn't even matter if it's something that I don't even like. If I see somebody doing something really good, I kind of want to do it too. I find that really attractive when people are able to accomplish something. And we, I think we sort of naturally get this as kids. Capman for 
pretty much his whole life now, looks at Sarah and I as his, as his kind of heroes, right? Which is kind of scary. It makes me want to set a pretty high bar for myself and, and achieve a lot. But at the same time, he, he watches us and he tries to emulate us. But he also, if you'll see, he, he watches people up here playing music and stuff like that. And he'll set up at home his little guitar and he'll set up a little microphone with his broom and his little thing where he sets his guitar. And he tries to emulate that because he thinks that that is just the greatest thing. It's amazing to watch. I think a lot of us did that with our parents or with people who raised us. We looked at them or, or looked at different mentors or, or people that have had significant impact in our lives and we want to do something like that. So I know when I see somebody do something amazing like James up here singing, I, I want to try to emulate that. I'm, I'm trying to learn to sing and I'm far from where Father James is at, but <laughs> decided to get a parting shot there. Uh, but it, it makes me, it inspires me to want to try to get better. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. We want to do this in the face of excellence because in the moment that we're experiencing it, these people are inspiring us to something, to be something greater than ourselves. We, we want to try to be, I don't want to say try to be the best because it's not about achievement, but we want to achieve something Great, we want to do something with what we are. And that, whether that's singing or telling jokes or calculating the distance across the galaxy or throwing a fastball, all of these things are neat things. So here, Paul is calling us to have the selfless attitude of Jesus because Jesus is the best at being selfless. It turns out Jesus is the best at a lot of things, but being selfless is what Paul's talking about right here. If they were having a, a humility contest, Jesus would win every single time. Now, before we get into verse 6, I'm just going to push pause for a moment and make sure that we pick up something really, really cool that perhaps uh, most of you have already heard before, but I'm going to say it again anyway, just in case you haven't. But this, these next six verses, verses 6 to 11, are something very, very important for us to, to notice because they link us to the earliest church worship practices, the very, very earliest church. And incidentally, if you've ever experienced or had a conversation with somebody who says to you something like, you know, the Bible can't be true, right? And you go, oh, why? T tell me why the Bible can't be true. And they're like, well, you know what? It can't be true because... It was written down so many years after Jesus was alive that it became legendary. That this idea, Jesus wasn't God, he was just a good teacher, but it was written so far after and it was like, you know, the fish kept getting bigger in the stories. So Jesus started off as a guy who was a good teacher and then slowly ended up becoming God. It was, it was this legendary sequence of events. Has anyone ever heard that before, something along those lines? Am I the only one who talks to, to people who aren't Christians? Like, is it... <laughs> But anyway, this is, like a, this is a common thing that I've heard when people are trying to, to smash down the Bible. So maybe one day you'll have that conversation. So this is what you can say when that conversation happens. This exact text is believed by most scholars to be written, or it was written, within three to five years of Jesus' crucifixion. How do we know that? Well, it's because if, you're, if you were to read this text in the Greek, you would see that Paul's writing, well, he's dictating it, and a scribe is writing it down. It's in a certain form of Greek. So it, it's almost like you're writing, a, a, an e someone's written you an email, say, say someone you love has written you an email, and they're, they're writing this really great kind of love email. And you can tell this is their words, their words, their words. And then there's this poem in the middle. And you're like, 
they didn't write that, right? This is copied and paste, right? They found this on the internet somewhere, and now they're, they're kind of pawning it off as their own because then all of a sudden it's them talking again. If you were to read this in the Greek, it's like, okay, this is clearly Paul talking, 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 cut at verse 5, and then 6 to 11 is something else, and then, it start, and then Paul starts again. So it's one of the many reasons. I'm not going to get into all of them, but we can tell by the way it was written that this Paul's quoting something. And so we believe that this was uh, a, a hymn or a creed that was used by the very earliest church to discuss and to remind themselves daily within every service that who Jesus was, that he was amazing and that he was not only a man, but that he was God, that he was worthy of worship. So this, it, there was no time for this to become some legendary thing. This happened immediately after Jesus's crucifixion. So why, uh, another reason why this is interesting is because the church, the early church used this as a way to govern their life, as, as, a, as a motivation of sorts to be able to live their life well. It's an example of what our lives should look like if we follow the master. So basically, Paul here is talking about being humble, being selfless, and now he's going to give us an illustration of what this looks like, and he's looking to no one other than Jesus. And so this is verses 6 to 11. I actually want us to, to read this together as, uh, as a creed. So if you wouldn't mind, we're going to go up here. So he's talking about Jesus, who, read with me, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's pretty amazing, hey? From the earliest, this has been going on for 2,000 years. People have been reciting this creed together. So, back, circling back to verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God with Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So, Jesus is God. Jesus is man, Jesus is God. And when he took on flesh to hang out with us, he did, just didn't care to retain that status. I'm going to get a little bit more into that in verse 7. But I don't know about you, but one, one of the most captivating, I'm not a really starstruck kind of person, but one of the things I do find captivating about people like the powerful people or the important people in our society, the stars, the celebrities, is when they, they do normal things like us, right? Like they go grocery shopping or do whatever. It's just kind of weird to, for me to think about that. And one of the, does anyone remember Kurt Russell? The, 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 the actor Kurt Russell, he was kind of a big deal uh, for, for quite a while. Uh, and anyway, Kurt Russell, I grew up on the island, and he had a boy that played minor hockey on the island. And so whenever his boy was playing, he would go and like, catch a flight over, and, and my stepsister actually used to rent him cars at the airport. But he wanted just to be a regular guy. He'd rent his car, and he'd go, and he'd sit in the stands, 
And when Kurt Russell was doing this, he was essentially relinquishing his star. He didn't want to be Kurt Russell the star. He wanted to be Kurt Russell the dad. He wanted to just watch his son's game, cheer for his son, hang out, talk with other dads, talk with other parents, and just be a regular person. So he was, he was giving away, he was trying to push back all the stuff he was doing. I remember when I worked at, I was a teenager, I worked at Little Caesars, and I was just this meathead teenager, and, and this, uh, the boss, the, the owner of, of Little Caesars, he would come, and he would just flip pies with us meatheads. He'd like basically take a shift, and it, so it was like undercover boss, except we knew he was the boss, but he didn't want to be... He didn't want us to treat him like the owner. He wanted us to treat him just like a regular guy. And so he'd like take breaks with us and stuff like that, wear the same uniform and do all the same stuff as we did. It was really, really cool. See, Jesus is God. Take, like, it's really funny to think about that, to take our, a moment and to wrap our, our heads around that Jesus was there at the, at the creation of the universe, created the universe, and then came and went from doing that to washing people's feet, people's dirty, stinky feet. It's pretty incredible. Verse 7, so he, he's God, but he emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. So first, just to be clear, when it says emptied himself, it doesn't mean that Jesus all of a sudden didn't, he, he got rid of his godness or, or something like that. He, he took away his, his god abilities or something like that when he came, that he ceased to be God when he was born of Mary. Jesus was and is both authentically God and authentically man. So he has, in other words, he has, he's one person. Right? He has one center of consciousness, but he has two natures. We, as, as human beings, we have one center of consciousness. We're, we're a person, and we have a human nature. Jesus is a person with two natures. So he's a person with a, a divine nature and with a human nature. Both authentically divine, authentically human. So he's not two persons. He's not two sorts of things or anything like that. Second, the enormity of this act is, is literally impossible for us to, to grasp, right? It, it's kind of like trying to, to pin something down, some sort of an analogy like the Trinity. It, it, there's nothing in, in our experience that can give us, this, is, this whole thing, if you, you want a, a 99 cent theological word, this is called kenosis. There's nothing to describe the kenosis, Jesus' incarnation where he emptied himself of his, uh, thank you, his deity, because he didn't get rid of it. See, we can get the being a person thing, right? Because he already was a person. God is a person. So becoming, becoming a person, that's easy to think about. But God becoming a person, that's harder. But I'm game. We're going to give it a shot. But I'm going to give this, this is a disclaimer. This is just an analogy that I found helpful for me to try to grab some of the enormity of this. But it's not a one-to-one -one thing. So don't throw any heresy rocks at me or anything like that. Okay, so let's talk galaxies for a second. What's our galaxy called? Milky Way, right? Man, this is such a good class. You guys are getting all, all the answers right. So the Milky Way, this is, it's called a, a barred spiral galaxy, a barred spiral galaxy, and it's approximately 100,000 light years across. 
So that's about one with 18, I, see I did the math myself, so don't quote me on this, but it's a, I think it's one quintillion, like that's a one with 18 zeros past it, kilometers wide. It contains over 200 billion stars, and recent measurements have weighed the galaxy. Like, can you imagine, though, like, as big as this galaxy was, can you imagine the scale that they had to have that would have, because, you know, they weighed it, right? Like, man, tough room. But, so they've, they've managed to calculate the weight of the galaxy, and it's between 400 billion and 780 billion times the mass of the sun. So it's, in other words, it's, it's kind of big. It's kind of big. So galaxies are big. In the movie Men in Black 1, have you, have you guys ever seen this? Okay, in the movie Men in Black 1, I don't know. The, the, the premise of the movie is the bad guys are trying to basically, they say like to steal a galaxy. And the good guys are like, how in the world do you steal a galaxy, right? Like galaxies are, are they're enormous. Like how are you supposed to do that? And the one clue that they have is that the galaxy is on Orion's belt, which is even more confusing because Orion's, a, a, it's a constellation inside the galaxy. So how in the world can a galaxy be on, that's like, it's, it's mixing things up, right? Until you find out that there's this guy, this one character, and he has a cat. And his cat is named Orion. But it, it gets better. He's also ESL. I know, <laughs> Julian's like, oh, and Sarah's like, see? And they call the cat's collar, he, he calls the cat's collar a belt. It's a collar man. If he had said it's on Orion's collar, that would, that, it would have been like a 15-minute movie, right? Or like a five-minute movie. But he called it a belt. And so they're looking, they're getting confused with whatever. So it turns out this cat is running around with a collar. And on its collar is a little marble, like something that looks like a marble. When in fact, in this little thing is, it's a galaxy. So the galaxy is the size of a marble, yet it doesn't have less galaxy energy, less galaxy power. It's just put into a smaller thing. So it didn't become a lesser galaxy, still powerful like a galaxy, it just became accessible to human beings. Jesus, do you like this? Jesus, when he came to earth, didn't lose his godness, didn't lose any of his god power, he just came down to the level of accessibility of human beings. Why would he do that? If you read the writer of Hebrews, you would know that Jesus came to do that to show us people, human beings, people he loved, he died for, how to live. He came and experienced things just as we did, but yet wasn't with sin. And then he died for us. Verse 8, and being found then in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So some people might, when they talk about Jesus, so okay, he put up with some insults and, and all that stuff, so what's the big deal? Okay, well, I'll take your, your insults and, and that sort of thing, and I'll raise you a criminal's death on a cross. Now, I know everybody at this point goes, this is the very worst way to die, right? Like, it's funny, with Jesus' life, everything's always the, the worst, right? He grew up in the worst sort of situation. He died the worst death and, and all that stuff. And sometimes I wonder if that's not because we want to try to 
make it seem more important or powerful than it is when God doesn't actually need us making any sort of apologies for him. But in actuality, like when you really think about it, when you think about what crucifixion entails, like maybe getting eaten by ants or slowly roasted for a few days or, you know what I mean? Like there are there, I can't actually think of a worse way when you think about crucifixion to die. Like it, it literally does sound like the worst way to go. And not to mention the fact that it is unbelievably, or at the time, unbelievably humiliating because essentially the worst of the worst would get crucified and put on display while everyone laughed at them. And Jesus even more, crown of thorns, sign, king of the Jews, right? Ha, ha, ha. Save yourself, all you can't, right? No one knows that he's actually sacrificing himself and allowing this to happen. But nevertheless, there's all kinds of moving parts there that make this situation the worst. Why would somebody subject themselves to that? See, the key is that Jesus is humbling himself in obedience to the Father. This, uh, or this translation leaves out uh, God because it's not in the Greek, but if you read one like the NLT, it, it makes it specific to help us understand that Jesus' obedience isn't to himself. It's, it's not to just some random thing. He's being obedient to God the Father. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we have, particularly in North America, is what monarchies, the purpose behind monarchies, you know, like king, queen, that sort of thing what they're supposed to be for. I think that most of us think that monarchies are this sort of handed down tradition to like be rich and famous and powerful and you know what I mean? Live it up and while you're stepping on the necks of all the people that are supposed to be serving you, right? Woohoo! Subjugation, right? Like that's sort of what monarchies are about. When in fact, if, you, if you've ever read, uh, you know, history, or uh, maybe watch the Netflix, The Crown, or some sort of documentaries and stuff like that, you, you, you know, or you, you get to know that a monarchy is actually supposed to be there to what? Think, okay, let's think of the English monarchy, so the British monarchy. What's the British monarchy supposed to do? Protect, exactly. It's supposed to be there to serve, to protect the British people. That's what it's supposed to be for. And in fact, they say that this is actually a... a, a job, a task that they've been given by God to do that. Now, does that mean that every person who's ever worn a crown has done that? Right? Like, no, there's tons of people that have not taken that and done what they're supposed to do with it. But it doesn't mean that that's not what it's there for, what it's supposed to be for. See, uh, you may have heard the, the, the quote before that absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Man, you guys know all this stuff. It, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So people, when we get in positions of, of power like this, there's real big ways that will go sideways. But it doesn't mean that that's the way it's supposed to be. Especially if the person wearing the crown isn't the type of person who takes this obligation to heart that they're supposed to actually be a servant to the people. Someone who's looking up for the best interests of the people. And part of being that selfless servant is being okay to not always be first. To take one for the team, as it were. To not always get what we want when it's for the good of other people. So for the, the Queen of England, the people, her people, would be the British people. My question to you, to us, is, who are your people? 
Who are my people? Who are those people in our lives that we could be taking our, our success, our possessions, our influence, and using all of that to protect them, to serve them, to build them up? And by the way, when I, when I talk about my people, I'm not just talking about the people in, say, my family or, or just the people in this room. I'm also including the people that are in my greater community. I'm also including the people that, remember last week we talked about this, who don't you want to sit next to on an airplane? Remember the, the, the people that I may actually not like at all, those are still my people. Here's, the, here's actually the standard Jesus set in Luke 6. 32 to 36, if you love those only who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, repay you why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to others for full return. Verse 35, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High God for, and I love this, he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. We are called to be kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. He says, this is Jesus talking, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that even while we were still sinners, even while I was still a sinner, Jesus died for me. That's his way of putting other people first. And I read this and I think, there's still some times when I complain about having to pick someone up at the airport. <laughs> and so because Jesus did that, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee, every single knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. in heaven and on earth and under the earth. See, this is the simplest way to describe what a follower of Jesus should look like and that's, uh, or should do, sorry, and that's to glorify God. That's essentially like if you want to talk about like a two word, hey, what are, what are we supposed to do if we're Christians? Glorify God. And what that looks like though is we live out however many ways, days we have is going to be, it's going to be wonderful and complex, right? It's going to, it's going to, look different in each of our lives as it should because God's gifted us differently. But if you notice the word therefore at the beginning of, of verse 9 there, that means because of what Jesus did, because of what he did, that glorified God. So it stands to reason then if we emulate, if we mimic what Jesus did there, it will, if we use that as our model, then we're good, right? Like it just stands to reason. That means if we count ourselves more, or if we count others more significant than ourselves, 100% of the time that will glorify God. There's a rock solid guarantee. You'll never not glorify God by putting other people first and looking out for other people's interests before your own. See, last week we mentioned the expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? And, and what was the other one we did? Walk like... An Egyptian, right? I even sang the song. It was good. 
And essentially that means when you're, when you're somewhere and you're on someone else's turf, you, you want to kind of do what they do. And, and so when we look at how it is to live life well, who better than the author of life to look to? See, one of the reasons that, that I, I love being married to Sarah so much is that she really, really emulates this selflessness thing really well. Like, it, it's, it's amazing to me. I've never met anybody like her who's able to look to other people before herself and to do kind things for them and look out for them. And if you ask her why or, or how and stuff, typically you'll get a, a, a one-word answer. Anybody know it? It's, it's kind of the Sunday school answer. Yes. It's, it, she'll say Jesus. That's, that's the reason why she does it. Mother Teresa put it like this. She said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. I, this is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and, and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. So like Paul had Jesus to look to, and then the early church had Paul to look to, we now have a bunch of people. There's a lot of people in this room. I could, I could start pointing fingers and, and naming names of people in this room that love people really well, that are really good at this. And so we're blessed by that. We're blessed by people that can inspire us. Hebrews 10 talks about why not neglecting to meet one another with one another so that we can stir each other up to love and good works. Stir each other up to being selfless and to look to other people. What circumstances do you find yourself in where you can take that back seat of humility and instead use your influence to build somebody up? Think about that. How can you take someone else's goals and make them part of your own? Who can you love without expecting anything in return? See, this life that we lead, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a, it's not a sprint. So we can talk it over with God and ask him to show us where we can set aside our own interests and to put others first so that we can then count others more significant than ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've given us everything. Everything. Because of you, we have the opportunity to be in relationship with you. We have the opportunity to spend eternity in your presence. But now, Father, because of a relationship with you, we have the opportunity to be able to show other people that same grace, your good grace. So, Father, as a, as a community here at Central Community Church in, in the Lake Arak area, Father, we are so in, in need of you to inspire us, to empower us, to con continue to work through us. It's incredible to see all of the amazing ways already, all the cool things that you're doing in this community through uh, this little church. And so, Father, we pray that you will continue to do that, that you will continue to raise us up, that you will uh, motivate us, that you will get us excited, that you will give us this deep joy that can only come from you to be able to do this well, to be able to show other people exactly who it is that we serve who loves us so much that he did send his son. So, Father, thank you. And as we finish up tonight, help us continue to, uh, 
to fellowship well. We pray in your name. Amen.